Hi everyone, you're watching NBC10 Boston's newest Q&A series about the Russia-Ukraine war, where I speak with local experts every Wednesday about the latest developments around the conflict. So remember to send your questions to ukrainequestions at nbcuni.com. I'm here with Oleg Kotsuba of Harvard University's Ukrainian Research Institute, as well as Maya Cross and Pablo Calderon of Northeastern University. Thanks guys for being with us every week. Thank you. Now, when I met with you all last week, you were calling uh, for energy sanctions. And just yesterday, President Joe Biden announced a ban on oil imports from Russia. Canada has done the same. The EU has pledged to cut imports by two thirds uh, before the end of the year. How, how powerful of a blow is this to Russia? Maya? I think it is a significant move. It's um the the energy sector is uh, about 40% of Russia's economic profit in the international system. So, you know, while things are only just getting started at this point when it comes to the energy sector, uh, this will have an effect. But in reality, the sanctions as they are now, the very historically sort of punishing sanctions are already starting to have an effect. So, as we watch over the coming you know, days and weeks, there will be even further deterioration of, of the Russian economy. I think one thing from the EU perspective, however, is it is not as easy for the EU to sort of cut off its um, Russian imports, uh, not in the same way as the US can do it. The US imports less than 3% of its oil from Russia whereas around 40% of, of gas that Europeans use come from Russia. Uh, so it's, it's a very different kind of calculation, but I think there's this uh, an EU summit happening this week where they will do everything in their power to rapidly um, dial down their reliance on um, Russian energy. It can't happen overnight, but at the same time, time, you know, Russia can't switch to actually selling its oil and gas to China overnight either. So it is certainly the next step. It's it, in the sanctions regime. It's necessary. And I would expect it to really have even more of an effect on Russian foreign policy right now. Great. Ola, Pablo, do either of you have anything to add? Sure. I think from, from the Ukrainian perspective, you know, every drop of uh, uh, Russian oil you know, and every cubic meter of Russian gas is is you know what what is causing uh, a lot of bloodshed in Ukraine. And so the West that Russia is trying to undermine definitely should not sponsor Russia, should not give it money to wage the war against Ukraine and against the West. I think that's a very important lesson here, and and I'm very happy and very glad to hear that the United States at last has implemented this step. I agree with Maya that it will be very difficult for, for Europe to wean itself off of Russian energy. And uh, oil is probably a little bit more flexible because you could contract oil elsewhere in the world, even if supplies are limited. But gas, delivery of gas, natural gas is, of course, uh, something that is much more difficult. And so one of the things that um, the European Union is talking about is, is building LG terminals to uh, receive condensed gas, so which would allow for imports from the United States, for example, as well as from other countries. But more importantly, they're talking about uh, transitioning to green renewable energy sources. I think that's long-term. I mean, that, that movement has been already going on and Germany has done a lot to achieve that, but that movement is going to only intensify now 
uh, with this, with the realization that, you know, they, they need to become energy independent and definitely uh, less dependent on Russia. And so how, how to achieve that, you know, that's the, that's going to be the question. So some, some leaders are speaking about hydrogen, uh, you know, trying to use the infrastructure that is there to transport hydrogen, to use a certain mix of natural gas and hydrogen that would still be kind of possible to use for heating, maybe even for cooking and so on. So on the te technology level, I'm sure that there is a lot of solutions that can be employed, but generally then everyone needs to intensify their efforts to transition from carbon uh, fuel economy to renewable energy economy. Absolutely. Can I, can I just say very quickly as well, I think uh, I agree with everything that's been said before, right? These are very important steps long overdue in the case of Europe, to be honest, to, to shift away from, uh, from energy dependence on Russian oil and gas, uh, gas in particular to a great extent. But I agree with Maya that this is something that is going to take time. Uh, and it really does depend on how quickly uh, the EU can shift away, certain countries within the EU as well, can shift away from the dependence on, on, on Russian energy sources. If they can find substitutes relatively quickly, because we know that the transition to green economies is obviously going to take longer uh, and probably after all, this crisis is going to take, take longer than we anticipated. And we're hearing a lot of noises on, on that respect as well. Uh, so I think it's all about how speedy, how quickly we can move away from this dependency in Russian oil and gas. Uh, but again, even if Europe manages to do so relatively quickly, it's, it's also true that these new measures are going to have a, a, an immediate effect in the price of gas and oil, which is to a certain extent going to allow Russia to have a boost of money in the short term. And Again, this, this pretty much puts in the balance the, the need to have more short-term measures that, that affect the conflict right now uh, and obviously couple them together with longer-term effects to contain Russian power and Russian aggression uh, towards the rest of Europe in particular. But there is a need, I think, I still think there's a need to do more right now to, to help the people in Ukraine right now and to solve the problem right now. And I think that's where the European Union, the United States and the West in general are, are falling a little bit short of, of what is needed right now on the ground. I agree. Yeah, what, I agree. What more would you say is needed? Uh, from, from my perspective, I mean, we saw this whole debacle that happened with, with Poland and the U.S., whether they were going to lend their, the, the jets, the MiG jets or not, because obviously Ukrainian pilots, have they cannot fly American jets, Western jets that train in Russian jets. So, And it's very hard as well. There's this sort of balancing act that exists with Europe between not wanting to anger Russia anymore or provoke Russia anymore, and I think that's putting a little bit of the handbrake on the, the support that I can actually give. Uh, and I think it's it's a little bit too late, right? I mean, I think Russia has been pretty much anger already, right? They, they've been provoked. The provocation is there. Um, we, we need to do more, right? For instance, the United Kingdom, Britain has only taken about 500 refugees and issued about 500 visas. That's, that's shameful. And it should be doing a lot more. And there is something that needs to be done now. And we're not, we, we have to move away from... <laughs> this fear of direct confrontation with Russia, because to a great extent, the direct confrontation is already happening. Russia is already right. made in the European country, so yes. it's too late to be cautious now. Yes, I only have one correction to, to Pablo, if I may. It was unprovoked. Russia has been angry without provocation, from my perspective. But I, I would sure. say... I mean is that, no. yeah. Sorry, what I mean is that they were, I'm, they're worried about provoking Russia even further, but Russia already sees the provocation. Russia's already on the war footing, on the front foot. That's right. It's too late to play the cautious game, in my opinion. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So in Ukraine right now, people are saying, you know, our 
our mere existence, the fact that we are alive is a provocation for Russia. You know, so you, there is no way to negotiate with someone like that. If someone comes to your house and says, I don't want you to leave. <laughs> I want to destroy your, your home. I want to kill your children. I want to kill you. And then I will be satisfied. There is no way of negotiating with someone like that. So that's the that's the main point. Right. I, I mean, I completely agree. This is totally on Russia. It's Russian aggression. And there can't be any appeasement of, <laughs> of what Russia is, de is demanding in terms of NATO and everything. But there is still this red line, this clear red line about involving NATO countries directly in fighting. And that hasn't been crossed yet. Um, it's certainly a possibility, right? The minute that there's some sort of accidental or purposeful landing of a missile, for example, launching it into a NATO country, it's a completely different game there. And so I think, you know, Pablo is right, there's some caution, but also for good reason, because we are talking about a nuclear power. And if Putin is really as maximalist as he seems, then there may not be enough hesitance uh, to prevent this from becoming first a world war and then potentially a world war involving nuclear weapons. So there's a lot at stake. Um, and but I agree, of course, the West should do everything it possibly can without being directly involved with their own troops, um, firing at Russian troops. Yes, yeah, so there is definitely a lot at stake. I would like to remind our listeners and, and everyone that Ukraine had a nuclear deterrent too, mm -hmm. and it gave it up in an unprecedented step. No one in the world has done something like that. The only comparable example was with the South African Republic, which had one, I believe, one rocket. You know, Ukraine gave up 5,000 something, uh, you know, nuclear warheads. And what, and, you know, so now it actually, this whole situation is very tragic and very um, ironic because it proves once again to the rest of the world that you're only safe if you can threaten the world with the nuclear weapons. And the reality is that no one is safer in such a world, no one. And so how to deal with that, I think the West, you know, what kind of what has what they have been doing, providing weapons and so on, is the right thing to do. Ukrainians are not asking the, you know, uh, boots on the ground, any kind of NATO soldiers to come into Ukraine and help. But they are asking for equipment. Those uh, Soviet built, including built in Ukraine, Soviet built fighter jets, you know, are just another type of weapon. You know, the West has been providing the javelins and the stinger missiles and all of that you know so you know why not provide the fighter jets that's exactly what what you know what is this the, is the one weakness of the ukrainian army right now they are unable to defend civilians who are being bombed you know with with aerial bombs right now my my you know my aunts and my uncles are sitting right now in mikolaev in a basement because their city is being bombarded it's encircled from three sides and is being bombarded what have they done to Putin? Nothing, right? So that's the least that the West can do is provide all the weaponry that it has stashed and is not using anyway. Now you guys are talking about the reluctance of NATO to sort of get more directly involved in conflict, but the president of Ukraine has also been calling for the no-fly zone, which would require NATO to somehow um, like monitor in a way what, what's going on in the air and, and probably require, um, you know, air, you know, jets to go up in the air to do that. So that's more direct involvement. Is that something that you guys see as, as another step or, or I guess exactly how, other than providing this, this um, 
military equipment and the jets that we've been talking about, how else do you think that uh, NATO needs to get more and the West need to get more involved here? Um, Ole? Sure. Um, I, I think that's a very difficult question. Uh, the Ukrainian community here in the United States, as well as abroad, and the Ukrainians in Ukraine are, are begging and pleading with all the partners, not just NATO countries, but with all the partners to help in establishing a no-fly zone in Ukraine, similar to what was established in the 90s over Bosnia and Herzegovina when a genocide was being committed there. Uh, in effect, the killing of, of children and women and innocent civilians only because they're Ukrainian amounts to a form of genocide. And so the kind of the request here is to find a solution. If the NATO is reluctant, there are other partners outside of NATO that could effectively do that. There are possibilities also with NATO countries such as Turkey, for example, which although is a NATO member, but has close relations with Russia and actually would be able to still do it without provoking an all out war you know, for uh, NATO with Russia. There are various options here that could be implemented. Not least of all, again, providing Ukrainians with the tools to implement the no-fly zone on, the, on their own. You know, Patriot missiles, the, the Iron Dome systems that have been provided to Israel, for example, you know, a lot of other weaponry that could help Ukrainians stop the Russians from bombing civilians. And so um, I think that a solution can be found there if there is a will. Right now, the, the you know, Western countries, NATO in particular, and United States are so cautious and so you know, afraid of any kind of full-out war with Russia that they have uh, basically excluded the possibility of finding any solutions. And I think that is not right. Uh, the reality is, if, if we are concerned about starting World War III, the reality is it probably has already begun. We're maybe just not realizing it because the form and shape of it, the various factors, how it's fought, right? The cyber uh, war, the information war, and then the con more conventional war, all, all of those things are unusual compared to what we have seen before. But it is more likely than not that it's already happening. And, you know, the West supplying Ukraine weapons and military assistance and all other things is already involved. So the question is, uh, of course, we should do everything we can to not allow this war broaden and, and cause even more suffering for people outside of Ukraine. But at the same time, we need to all work together to find a solution that stops Russians from bombing Ukrainian cities with civilians who simply want to stay in their homes. You know, the reason my, my uncles and aunts are not leaving is because they're saying, you know, where, where should I go? What should I do? Should I become a beggar in a different country and live off of charity? I'd rather die here. That's the, that's the reason why people are still there. You know, and that's just a normal desire for everyone to, to stay in their homes. So, you know, we need to, we need to, I think there are options that are not as black and white. And by just denying even the possibility of, of going there, I think that the, the opportunities are being lost to protect human lives. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I did want to talk about, um, you know, there, there have been about two, mil 2 million people who have fled Ukraine since last month already. And, but you know, civilians are still dying and and now the U.S. is, is looking into evidence of possible war crimes because because everyday people are, are being killed in, in this 
So uh, I just wanted to know if you guys could kind of explain to our viewers what constitutes a war crime and what it would mean to have that sort of officially, if, if Russia were to be sort of officially determined to have, have done that. Um, Pablo, would you want to start with that? I, I think that's a very interesting question. And I think that, I mean, the, the threshold for a war crime is, is quite high and it's, it's, it's quite, the bar is quite up there for a reason, right? Because countries want to protect themselves and so they want to be able to carry on military operations without being accused of war crimes every time they do so. So you have to prove that there's been a, a specific targeting of civilians and you're targeting civilians' populations. And that's very hard to prove because what the Russians could say, I mean, they won't even admit to that right now, but what Russia could say is that we didn't target them, you know, on purpose. We just didn't care as much about civilian populations. And it's a, you know, it, in reality, it doesn't make much of a difference. You're taking a bunch of civilians, but it's about the intent to a great extent. So the, the threshold is, the bar is quite high and it's quite difficult to prove. But I don't think we're necessarily that far of proving that at some point. And just going back to what Oleg was saying before, I think to a great extent, Putin is trying to fight a, a very 20th century war. He's trying to drag us back to the type of wars that were being fought in the 1980s, very much about territory, very much about military capabilities. And I think the West is reacting in a more 21st century way. So it's really a battle of styles as much as, much as, as, much as anything. And I think it's really upon the West really to enforce and NATO in particular, to enforce the type of war it wants to fight against Russia, the kind of war that the West is far more able to fight. And it's a war of technology. Uh, it's a war of, of, of equipment. It's a war of information. It's a cyberspace. All those. And at the moment, Russia is setting the tone of the conflict, right? And it's getting away with a lot of things because it's being, it's being led to do whatever it wants to do. Fighting the war, it really wants to fight. And I think NATO has to start making life difficult to Russia in that, for Russia in that front and for Putin in that front and try to move the, the, uh, the type of war that's being fought. Uh, and I think accusing Russia of war crimes is, is fair to a great extent, but trying to prove those war crimes at the moment is going to be very, very difficult. And I don't think they need to, there's a need really to fight a sort of, um, you know, sort of information capital popularity contest here. The international community at large knows that Russia is the aggressor, right? And we need to start thinking about how we're going to stop this aggression and how we're going to make the war that we want to fight rather than the war that Putin wants to fight. Now, Pablo and, and Maya, I'd like to get your thoughts on this after uh, Pablo answers. But Ola had mentioned that, you know, people are afraid of, of World War Three, but that it's likely already here. Is that a, do you agree with that? Uh, I... It's hard, obviously, it's, it's very hard to tell, but I think if we hasn't started, we are really close to it, right? Because as Maya was pointing out before, it's very, very difficult to see how at some stage an accident is bound to happen. If you're constantly shelling population, you're constantly bombing a country surrounded by NATO members, it's only a matter of time before an, an accident happens. And then it's going to be very interesting how NATO reacts to that. Uh, it's going to be a matter of time before either NATO decides to give up on Ukraine entirely or it starts seriously supporting the armed efforts of the Ukrainian population and starts properly providing arms, providing fighter jets, providing everything that Ukraine needs to fight this war. And then we'll have to see how Russia reacts. Um, but if, we, if it hasn't started already, I think it's closed. And I think the West is trying to avoid it. But I, honestly, I don't know if it's too late to avoid it or not. 
And and I would say that we really are at this cusp of either going down the road of World War III or some kind of protracted Cold War situation, which would obviously be preferable. I don't think we're quite at World War III yet because we don't see direct confrontation of NATO troops or European troops um, besides the Ukrainian ones with Russia. Uh, but there's there's also a way in which this could start to roll back short of World War III and sort of create more space between the situation and World War III. And that would be, you know, as as Putin's military continues to sort of fail in its tactics on the ground, um, the, the humanitarian crisis is, of course, very dire. Uh, but at the same time, it does betray some weakness in the ground troops of, of the Russian military, especially the 40 mile convoy that can't seem to move even one inch in its in its efforts to take Kiev. So if the military uh, side of the of this war starts to really decline further and and the Russian people, as well as Russian military leaders start to lose confidence in Putin, it's possible that he could be overthrown. And of course, there's no guarantee there would be a better government put in place or a better leader but it could give some excuse to kind of back down to some degree and create some level of stasis in an uncertain situation with Ukraine devastated um, and Russia still under sanctions, but something that doesn't escalate further. So we can hope for that. Um, but as far as the war crimes are concerned, I agree with Pablo that a lot of this is sort of symbolic. At the same time, I think it's important because as Pablo said, we don't want Putin to set the terms of this war. We don't want to simply be responding in the same way that he is being aggressive. And so to point out, you know, the values of the West, the very thing that the Ukrainians are putting their lives on the line to protect is important. Uh, 45 countries have prepared a report or they are in the process of preparing a report to submit to the International Criminal Court and the International Court of Justice. The ICC has opened an investigation. Um, there are, in my mind, clear signs of war crimes. And, and this is in some ways unusual in the 21st century in that regular citizens on the ground are able to record evidence of these war crimes and submit them. So there's actually a mountain of evidence compared to the past where it was a bit more difficult to, to gather that evidence. Um, so intentional targeting of civilians, of schools, of nuclear power plant, plants, um, hospitals, these things are happening on the ground and these are considered war crimes. At the end of the day, I don't think it's going to be very easy or even possible, perhaps, to arrest Putin or those who are helping him in this war um, and to try them. But, you know, the effort is important and pointing this out in, in great detail is important. I would like maybe to add that <clears throat> there are reports right now. So as, as you may know, there are uh, areas, suburbs of Kyiv that are being heavily shelled right now where they're basically encircled and there are checkpoints by Russian troops. So it's Bucha, it's Irpin, it's Vorzel, uh, Borodyanka, and others. And those who have made out of there have reported that the Russian soldiers are engaged in all kinds of crimes against humanity, including rape, including uh, killing civilians, you know, uh, on blank point, including, you know, other, other horrible, horrible things. You have all seen the images uh, over that bridge, Romanivka bridge, from Irpin into uh, towards the capital of Ukraine, where 2,000 people, you know, were sheltering under the bridge, trying to cross, and then Russian mortar fire was killing innocent civilians who made the dash. 
Um, there are there are reports and also photographic and video evidence from Mariupol on the Black on the Black Sea. The port city that is crucial for you know keeping keeping that area from being overwhelmed by Russians. There are corpses lying on the ground in that city right now, and there is no one to pick them up because Russians are shelling constantly. There is no food. People are going into the stores and effectively looting the stores because they have no water or food to survive. There are no medications, there are no hospitals, nothing. So absolutely there are war crimes being committed on the ground in Ukraine. I agree that maybe it will not be possible in the foreseeable future to bring Vladimir Putin as well as his whole circle of friends you know, and, and, and allies um, to justice. But justice needs to be served, at least in acknowledging what is happening in Ukraine right now. What, what Ukrainians are afraid of is that there will be another either proxy war or another prolonged warfare on Ukraine's territory, destroying the country and killing you know, millions of, of people. Uh, last time we spoke about the kind of the historical context of all of this. Ukraine was the theater of some of the bloodiest events in, in the world history of the 20th century. The First World War, the Second World War, the Stalin collectivization and the, the famine all happened on Ukraine's territory. Ukraine, Ukraine lost over 8 million people in World War II, three and a half to 5 million people in the famine that Stalin uh, in, in, initiated and an unknown number of people in World War I because of all the different civil war things that were going on. This is something that needs to be avoided. Right now, there is still a chance to stop this. If we don't do enough, this will go into years and is going to destroy un, you know, <laughs> a tremendous amount of lives, of human lives. So let, I, I would appeal to everyone, yes, we need to think about the, you know, the war crimes and all of that. But let's try to do more to be effective in stopping it right now. And um, before I move on, I do want to ask what people can do at the local level. Before I move on, does anyone want to expand on anything we just talked about up until this point? No? Okay. So the, last week, Governor Baker talked about uh, or issued an order uh, for all executive branches to terminate any contracts with Russian state-owned companies. And he's also directing the state's office for refugees and immigrants to work with the federal government to offer support for immigrants and refugees who have fled Ukraine um, because of the, the Russian aggression and violence there now. So I wanted to get an idea from the three of you, what kind of impacts those types of orders have and what more the state of Massachusetts can be doing. Like, are the, the you know, we're, we're so far away and it might feel small to some people, but I, I would love to hear what you think the, what, what kind of difference do those things make and, and what else can, can be done? Maya? Yeah, I think, well, Massachusetts is a state that has a lot of universities. So I think there is a, a special role that the state can play in terms of welcoming scholars in exile, particularly helping all of those students in Ukrainian universities seek uh, passage to the U.S. and then being able to continue their studies here. The same also for faculty members. Um, I think that these are ways in which it's it's um, pretty easy to kind of create some support 
but also, you know, it's it's important to keep the dialogue going and the support for Ukrainians at front and center. In all of this, there are uh, people domestically in the U.S. who are still sort of impressed by Putin's actions, which is so unfortunate. Um, having this division and not kind of a solid solidarity behind Ukraine and and condemning Russians' actions um, is is not a good sign. So being able to really focus on the the humanitarian problem here and also awareness of the greater ramifications of this conflict for for the world um, is is key but any humanitarian aid signing petitions um, pressuring government officials to do more for ukraine and to condemn russia would be helpful Hello, Pablo. Yeah. Can I, can I just very briefly add to, obviously I'm not an expert on, on what Massachusetts is doing right now, but I think I agree with Maya that it's very, very important to see a, a response from multiple levels and from multiple actors across the world. And it's very, very important, and this is entirely anecdotal, but I've been talking to friends in Russia and people that I know that are in Russia, and, uh, and even outside Russia and other parts of the world, people are supportive of, of Putin to a certain extent, very supportive in the case of Russia. But other parts that say, well, you have to look at the Russian side of things. And, and I don't think we really need to see any side of, of things. It's a very clear act of progression. So anything that shows the support and it shows that the unity of the international community and the unity of different governments, private actors, NGOs, common citizens, governments across the world is going to help to keep putting pressure on Russia. And particularly for the people within Russia, which are the only ones that can really accept any change in the government of Russia right now for the people within Russia to realize that Russia is becoming a pariah state and what Russia is doing is wrong and needs to stop. And, and that's the constituency really that we have to be speaking to right now. And I think all these sort of, even if they're symbolic, right, they're very, very important to show that the whole international community, everybody across the world is united against this, this war of aggression. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I, I think definitely there are uh, a lot of ways that the local community here can contribute to helping Ukraine. I would like just to mention a few such possibilities, and that goes also along what Maya had um, highlighted, as well as Pablo. Uh, earlier this week, or at the end of last week, uh, the uh, the Anti-Corruption Action Center in Kyiv has published an appeal to Western academic institutions and think tanks to uh, sever connections with the Russian government Russian uh, state-sponsored institutions and Kremlin oligarchs who have been funneling money into those academic institutions and think tanks. And so we need to acknowledge that the West, <clears throat> to some extent, is complicit in laundering the reputation of these people who have enabled Putin to do what he's doing today. Harvard University has taken money from Len Blavatnik and has named a school after him. This cannot be the case anymore. That has to stop. MIT had a Skolkovo, so it was called uh, MIT Skolkovo Initiative, Skoltech, uh, which is a completely state-sponsored enterprise, and uh, you know is basically uh, you know a kind of um, uh, a vanity project for Putin and Medvedev before him. They have pulled out of that upon the urging of the faculty and students inside the university. Uh, uh, Tufts University has a program at the Fletcher School of Diplomacy uh, with the uh, uh, Institute for Foreign Relations of the uh, Russian Ministry of Foreign Relations. Uh, this cannot be. A lot of these programs uh, have helped 
Kremlin oligarchs, so not just any oligarchs, you know, seemingly independent of of the head of the state. No, these are the oligarchs that the Kremlin has created, that Putin has created. These are his pocket oligarchs, his wallets, where he stashes his money and where he uses them to implement certain things abroad. They have all been laundering their reputations in order to get a foot in the door, a seat at the table with prominent Western leaders from former presidents to secretaries of state and all the way to the political establishment here. We cannot allow for this to continue. So I think on the local level, our universities have to show that they have some moral standing. Because if you, on the one hand, make the symbolic gestures of condemning, but on the other hand, you take millions and millions of dollars and rename schools and buildings after Russian Kremlin oligarchs, you can you can you cannot have any moral superiority. We need to talk about this. We need to appeal to our leaders. We need to appeal to these uh, local universities and ask them to do things that are morally right, which is sever all of these ties and isolate Russia and those oligarchs uh, from the rest of the world. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, we, we are out of time, but it has been really interesting to get all of your thoughts and helpful to get all of your thoughts on these important issues. And I will look forward to talking to you guys next Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you.